0: Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to finish it up today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we just uh, ask that you would take what Jesus is saying here, Father, and really open our hearts and our minds to exactly what he has for us. It's so wonderful, and the more we live it, the greater your influence in the world will be, and the much happier we'll all be. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever been through one of those... um, word association tests that psychologists like to give, you know, well, they, they like say a word, and you're supposed to say the first word that comes into your mind, you Ever, ever do that? Kind of a thing. It's supposed to reveal personality traits and internal conflicts based on the words you say and something like So they'll, you know, they say something like, boy, and you go, girl, and uh, car, and <coughs> wheels, or duck, pond, or therapy, money, or what, those kind of things, so. <clears throat> You know how it works. So let's try this word, just think of the, you don't have to yell it out because we'll all be probably different, but the first word that comes to your mind when I say church, what was it? Luckily I'm deaf because I can't hear what you're saying, but they sound, they sound good. You could say all kinds of things, bride, worship, um, cathedral, boredom, metal chairs, dogmas. <laughs> love hypocrisy uh, good friends I mean there's all kinds of things people could associate with the word church based on their experience or their their view of things in the world so I can imagine all kinds of answers some some wonderful and, and some sort of sad but our text this morning suggests a word we really should always go to very quickly when we think of church or the idea of church and I don't mean just a church meeting, I mean, what the church is to Jesus Christ in this world, the church. So um, you might have noticed we didn't quite finish Matthew 19 last week. We stopped at verse 26, just as Jesus, uh, right after his concluding remark on the salvation of well-to-do, respectable people, and we looked at this young man last time, a man of means, and how Jesus attempted to reveal his heart to him, to help him see his need of a savior and his inadequacy, um, he was very confident. He thought he he was just like a footstep from heaven's door in terms of his life. A a good man, a commandment keeper in his own mind, he believed himself to be one. So Jesus essentially applied the test of lordship to him to see if this man had genuine faith or if it was a shallow and self-deluded sort of faith. So in verse 21 he said, if you wish to be complete, Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. It's this wonderful invitation into the company of Jesus and his disciples he gives to this man. And the joys of eternal life with that, you know. But he he hasn't the faith to envision a heavenly treasure that he should live for in contrast to all the treasures he had on earth. He was a wealthy man. He can't He can't see beyond this life, so he... He can't trust God for everything. And and though he actually knelt before Jesus and he asked him what one thing should I do to have eternal life, he didn't wanna follow him. Couldn't follow him, couldn't do it. So he walks away and Jesus comments on his leaving. Verse 23, he said, truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, the disciples jump on that immediately. Like, what? In verse 25 they say, then who can be saved? It's an incredible thought that a man of this good reputation, good character, a man of means, a nobleman, a a gentleman, cannot go to heaven. If he's out, they're asking, who's in? So Jesus reassures them with a very important bit of doctrine regarding salvation. He says, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. God can save anyone. That's a precious truth. In fact, that's our hope of eternal life is that God can save somebody like me, right? that God can work a miracle and open our eyes and our hearts to his glory and the wonder of his love and to receive him as our Lord. He can humble us. So the disciples are still sort of agitated, and thankfully, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this remarkable saying that follows. It's very important. So First Peter um, Peter, he's always ready to speak up, right? So he asks a question, they're all thinking, and he's very blunt in verse 27. Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? We're not like him, we followed. So what's gonna be there for us? It's a fair question. I mean, the disciples had done exactly what Jesus invited this nobleman to do, to forsake his life and follow after him. They left everything behind, Peter and the boys. They left everything, and they followed him. But the comment on the impossibility of saving the rich and Jesus' explanation of a need for God's work in the human heart for salvation raised real questions for them. So he says, well, what then will there be for us? And he answers in this very reassuring way, a very glorious way, first to the twelve. And then he gives a statement that applies to all who follow him forever, down through the ages. That includes you and me, if we follow him. So first of the 12, um, he says, they will serve as the heads of their people. They'll be the judges of their people, verse 28. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Wow, judges. In a future age, when Christ comes to rule, what we call the millennial kingdom, Jesus calls it the regeneration here because all of creation is gonna be made new and um, uh, the curse is gonna be lifted, the curse of death and all these kind of things. And Christ sits on the throne of David there and when that new world is established, when he returns... Israel will be the center kingdom of the world. It'll be the capital of the world and Jesus will reign from there and his 12 disciples will be the judges of the 12 tribes of Israel in that kingdom. That's what he's promising them. That's an incredible thing. So there's only one king and that's Jesus but they will be under him as judges of their people. So the 12, for all their labors and sufferings for the kingdom, will be rewarded as the leaders of their people. They will be resurrected to reign with Christ. In short, their reward will be really, really great. But what interests me most is what Jesus adds on to this declaration regarding the 12. Because I'm not one of the 12, so it's interesting. But But this next part, that's got my attention. He goes beyond the 12, and he speaks to all who follow him. And this saying of Jesus... The very first time I read this in the Gospels, it struck me. I mean, when I was a brand new Christian, it doesn't mention the word church. I mean, the, gospel, the word gospel is, uh, the gospel seldom mention the word church. I mean, it only happens twice in Matthew. We already mentioned that. But this saying is about the church. I mean, it just breathes church because it's about those who are going to follow after him before his kingdom is established. So that's the church age. So we're right there. And, and what he says here. Really, whatever our word association with church is, what he says here should be the thing that undergirds all of our thinking about church and what it is and what it's for and our place in it. It says something really important about our life in Christ, about belonging, about rootedness, about the kingdom of God and how we represent the kingdom of God in this world. So here's the words, verse 29. He says, and everyone, mark that, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now that's an amazing promise. And if we go back just a a moment for that word association test idea, the word I'm thinking of in relationship to church based on this text is the word family. Family. All of those born of God are born into a spiritual family. That word has a lot of implications for us. All Christians are adopted into God's family and make up what the Apostle Paul called the household of faith, that's his word for it. And the connection between people in Christ is spiritual, which is more vital and more real than blood. You know, people say blood is thicker than water. Well, spirit is way thicker than blood if you wanna use that kind of language. It's more important. Church is, is much more than a loose assemblage of persons who have a common interest in the Bible and just wanna to be together a little bit. The church is actually the creation of God. It's for our good, it's for His glory. The church is the primary instrument through which God works in this world. It's extremely important. And amazingly, God works through people like us. I mean, his children, the household of faith, the community of the redeemed. Um, Ray Stedman years ago wrote a book on the church and he said, the church is the dwelling place of God. He lives in his people. That is the great calling of the church to make visible the invisible Christ. The calling of the church is to declare in word and demonstrate in attitude and deed the character of Jesus Christ who lives within his people. We are to declare the reality of a life-changing encounter with the living Christ and to demonstrate that change by an unselfish, love-filled life. I don't think I could say it any better than that. That's, that's it, he's got it. He's so right. That life has to be manifested in the context of a close community, a family. Or it won't be manifested at all, it won't be seen. So church is this spiritual family where these characteristics of Christ are manifested by redeemed sinners towards each other in close fellowship with each other. And this morning, I just want to consider that community the way Jesus envisions it here and as the early church actually lived it. And hopefully that will prompt us to to seek a deeper mutual life if we're not there yet and have this deeper mutual concern that we should have for one another. Let's hear the words again. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the first will be last, he says in verse 30, and the last first. So the central truth there, there is no good thing that you can forsake for Christ In this life that he will not return to you many times over, not only in eternity, but here in this world. So what could that mean? Well, a prosperity preacher would jump right on that, right? Does God owe me all of these goodies if I give up what I have for him? Do I just have to name it and claim it and I'll have a hundred houses and all kinds of other cool things, lots of farm? No, that's not what it means. To, to say this means God wants us all to be rich, is to totally pervert the very idea here, the very meaning of it. It's about people who've lost everything. And what Jesus is saying is that those who lose things for his sake have gained vast rewards and untold resources, human and material in fact, if you flip over to Mark's gospel, he, he says a really important line there that Matthew doesn't include. There's a little element there. I want you to see it, Matthew chapter, Mark chapter 10. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10. It's really helpful. He uses wording that more precisely draws the distinction that Jesus is making between this life and the next life. So it's basically the same thing, but there's a phrase there that Mark includes. Peter was probably reading Matthew and said, Mark, he also said this, and Mark wrote that down. Jesus said, verse 29, Mark 10, 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So there's several things there. But the phrase I want you to notice is in this present age. So he explains what the disciples will have now and what they will have in glory. Glory is basically eternal life and all the wonderful things that that means about heaven and what's gonna go on there. That's pretty straightforward, we all know about that. But look what the disciple may have to leave behind. Houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms. Family they might have to lose their family, home, jobs, productive land, and, but look what he will receive, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions. A hundred times, a hundred times, a hundred houses, a hundred brothers, a hundred sisters, 100 mothers, a hundred fathers, what can he mean? Well, he doesn't mean the prosperity doctrine. Even those folks don't claim to have 100 mothers, nor do they have 100 houses. They might have 10 big ones, but not 100. And farms and all that stuff. What does he mean? He means the church. That's what he means. If you lose your family, you've got a new family, and it's big. You lose your home, there's a Christian that will help you have shelter. They'll take you in. If you get driven out, if you're starving because you lost your job... The church will feed you. They'll take care of you. That's what he's talking about. You'll have a hundred mothers, a hundred fathers, a hundred brothers, a hundred sisters. So it's an incredible vision of the church. This wide spiritual family. And it's mostly what he talks about here is relational, isn't it? It's not mostly about houses and farms. It's mostly what he talks about is fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers, a very big family. Family language just dominates the New Testament when it talks about Christians. Brethren, children, father. It's the language of the Christian community. Let me give you a couple of examples, just two. First Timothy 5, um, Paul writes to the young pastor about how he should treat the saints under his care. And he doesn't call them servants, slaves, uh, <laughs> anything like that. He says, he says, Timothy, look, don't sharply rebuke an older man but appeal to him as a father. He's your father. He's a father in the body of Christ. To the younger men, talk to them like they're your brothers. The older women, as mothers. And the younger women, as sisters. And then he adds, in all purity, just so in case he gets stray there. Brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, that's how he's supposed to relate to his congregation. Church relationships, are familial. That's what they are. Another example is Acts chapter 4. You might want to flip over to there real quick. This this really expresses the practical outworking of this reality that Jesus is talking about in Mark 10 and Matthew 19. Acts 4 comes during a time of great persecution in the church, very young church. And the church is praying for courage and boldness to proclaim Christ And down in verse 32, it says, The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as had any need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth who was also called Barnabas by the apostles which translated means son of encouragement who owned a tract of land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So that's our little introduction to Barnabas there. Now This isn't communism, it's voluntary, it isn't even communalism. You know what I mean by that? Like, uh, hey man, let's just all live together and make like, you know, our own separate little community and we'll have a, it isn't that either. Communal property is never commanded in scripture ever. It's a spontaneous solution though here to a crisis that's going on when so many had lost their homes and jobs because of the persecution they were undergoing. And it all flows out of this one idea in verse 32. Those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's like an ideal family. You know, families are a little rough sometimes. But they were of one heart and soul. They were all on the same page. They, they loved the same Lord. They thought about things the same way. They were committed to the gospel and serving each other and getting the word out. But this is just the sort of thing families do when major catastrophes happen. They pull together and pull their resources together to help each other, usually. They should do that, most do. So this flows directly out of their relationship with Christ. Needs in the community were being met. Nobody went hungry. They didn't renounce private property, they were just willing to share it. And, if they, and in this crisis situation, they even sold land to have money to meet the immediate need. So as the needs increased, some people were more willing to liquidate assets to meet real needs, because those who believed were of, what were of one heart and one soul. Unified, sacrificial, looking forward, focusing on their primary concern, which was the gospel and the church family, their fellow believers. If you think back to that young nobleman in the earlier part of Matthew 19 there that we talked about last week, that's the passage right before this one. He couldn't give things up. And when you look at Acts chapter four, you see Christians overwhelmingly willing to give things up. The whole community was willing to do that. Because that guy was more attached to his stuff than he was to Jesus. And what the early Christians in the book of Acts were really happy to do He couldn't do it. So for them to forsake and to follow was the natural outgrowth of their faith. Stuff, to them, belonged to Jesus. It was his. And if he wanted them to do something with it, they would do that with it. The whole relationship to things and people changed as a result of following Jesus. So this idea of forsaking and following to them meant a genuine concern for the community of God's people that was in their presence, the people that were right there. And if you go down through the rest of the New Testament, you see see churches sending monetary gifts to other churches that were undergoing persecution or times of famine in other places where Christians were hungry and they would take care of each other across multiple countries. That's going on in the Bible too. So as Christians, we belong to Christ, which means that in him, we really do belong to each other in a familial way. Christians who don't bother with church, they are, they are failing one of their primary callings, which is to love and support the family. You, you, you can't be a solo Christian. It's not a solo sport. It's a team sport, you know? God has ordained three institutions for mankind. Marriage and family was the foundational institution. He made it creation. That was God's perfect Plan for a good world. As long as we were in fellowship with God, family met every human need. Then sin comes in and just shatters that whole plan. So marriage and family is still foundational, even though our culture is trying to throw it away. But it's marred. It's marred by selfishness and infidelity and pride and all kinds of sins. So uh, it's it's rough. And the human community was so marred by violence in the early years after uh, the fall of man that God instituted a second institution which is human government and he does that in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 where he says if, if a person kills another person human beings have the right to take that person's life in a judicial way so governments primary purpose is to restrain the chaos of wickedness that flows out of the human heart and behavior when There's no control. So people need restraint. But they also need more than restraint, don't they? Just being restrained from sinning doesn't get us anywhere except a a, a little more civilization. But we need redemption. We need restoration with God. We need salvation. We need our souls to be healed. So out of his great love, God creates a redemptive community. So there's the foundational community of the family, there's government to restrict and impose some kind of order on chaos, and then there's the redemptive community, the believing community. And it was supposed to be Israel. And if you just read through the Old Testament, you realize they don't do very well at that. And, and Israel really in a way is just a demonstration of what God telling people what they should do isn't enough. Because they just—they were so sinful like we are, they just broke all the commandments. So there had to be something new. So God promised a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, right? And the new covenant was that God would write his law on the hearts. He would change the heart. He would take out the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh to people. And that's, that's what happened when Jesus came. And that's the church. So now the church is that redemptive community. And that redemptive community is God's chosen way. It's his plan to proclaim his love and his mercy to the world. And people should see that in us so clearly that they they want to know something about Jesus and what makes that happen. This proclamation is not to be just by the word, but by living according to the laws of the gospel. The proclamation is not to be Just by word, it's how we act, the golden rule, the law of love, the Ten Commandments. Israel was supposed to be this beacon to the world, and it failed. The church is to carry the light of God into the whole world, carry it out. And that is done when we forsake and follow, forsake whatever things we were tied to and say, Jesus, we'll follow you." you, You want us to walk away from all of it? We'll walk away from all of it. You want us to share some of it? We'll share some of it. You just tell us what to do. And he does that by showing us needs. Christ wants us to love the church, the community of the redeemed, the family of God, and give it the same priority of devotion that the early Christians did. That's what he wants us to do. There has been a lot written in the Christian press. You know, I read Christian information all the time. It's part of my job, I guess. And I'm interested. I'm genuinely interested. (laughs) But um, (laughs) the last two or three years, there's a lot of uh, talk about the general decline in church attendance in the United States. And actually, it's not as low as it's been in the past. Um, You know, during the, the American Revolution, church attendance was like way down. So you had the Great Awakening in the 1740s. By the time you got up to 1770s and 70s, I mean, it was like down. People just didn't, well, the Enlightenment, there are all kinds of reasons for that. It pebs and flows over time. But it's kinda down now, a little bit. And there's some reasons for that, you know, that they come up with, cultural explanations. There are way fewer cultural Christians now, because you're a bad guy if you believe, like, there's two genders and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's really evil. So, um, you know, you, you're definitely gotta be counterculture. Most people are afraid to be counter-culture, So um they, they can't go with Christian morality, so they, they gave up on church. Um, if you're under 40 and you attend church, you're more likely to have a real interest in Christ than people did in the past. Because it used to be socially acceptable to go to church, and if you are a good person, you should go to church. So most people just showed up, right? That was kind of their thing. So, but now you've got to kind of like be pretty committed to it, if, at least to a biblical church, because uh, you're going to get a lot of flack for that. And people are way less loyal to institutions generally and social things. You know, they wrote a, some guy wrote a book years ago called Bowling Alone. Because and bowl, he was using bowling leagues as an illustration of the kinds of things people used to always do together. There were all kinds of social groups, clubs, societies, interests. People went out and did things together. And now everybody's locked in. I mean, TV really started to pull that down, but the internet is like totally destroyed people's lives. I just read an article the other day that 20% of millennials, those are young people, are incredibly lonely. I have no friends, no, 20% have no friends. I'm thinking, wow, that is a different world. And so um, church is part of that thing. People don't join the Elks Club anymore. You, you go to most of these clubs and they're old. Nothing wrong with being old, but <laughs> they will die with us, right? <laughs> So, um, and that's just kind of sad as a cultural thing, but uh, when church is thrown into that mix too, we just don't do that, you know, know, got other things to do, Um, that goes down too. but, But a Christian is not supposed to just be a Christian on their own, they belong to this family and they have familial obligations. Jesus didn't say on this rock I will build your life. He said on this rock I will build my church. And by that he meant the redeemed community. He gave his life for the church, the Bible says. And you can watch church on TV, but you can't serve the TV. I mean, it doesn't care. And you can't really practice your faith even in an online community. You can connect with people a little bit, encourage them or whatever, but it's not the same. Not like you can in person. Peter Gilquist wrote a book years ago. It was probably 25 years ago, but I... I like it, it's called Why We Haven't Changed the World. It's written to the church and he says in there, the simple truth is, as long as we continue on our merry way of private religion, we may as well write off the possibility of experiencing true righteousness or of changing the hearts of men and nations for Christ. Just as a good soldier does not fight without his army, so we cannot overturn the powers of darkness alone. If we continue to make saving faith private, making it strictly a matter between an individual and God, with the church only an interested bystander, we will see unholiness prosper, and our last state will be worse than the first. He wrote that like 25 years ago. Now, have we seen unholiness prosper? Yeah, because it's more like that now than it was then. Then he says, with singleness of purpose, our Lord Jesus Christ has raised up one place and one place only for his holy ones to call home, a place in which they can be accountable and answerable. It's time for the holy people of God to once again commit themselves to him in his church. God's people, God's institution, God's program, it's just where we belong. It's where we belong. It's a place where there are hundreds of dads and moms and hundreds of brothers and sisters and hundreds of kids and hundreds of houses and farms and all kinds of stuff. And we're all called to share the needs and the burdens of one another, to be there for each other. With accountability, what did we call that a few weeks ago? Fraternal admonition. Correcting one another, that too. So we're all in it together. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Don't let that incredible truth slip away from you. When Jesus taught us to pray, when he taught me to pray, when I read what he, how he taught me to pray in the Bible, he didn't teach me to, to say my father. He taught me to say our father because it's really a community thing. Even when I'm praying, He's our Father, you know? We're a body, a household, um, a body. Paul uses that so many times as an illustration with many parts, and they're all connected together. We pray as a people, we labor as a people, we worship as a people. And for those who, by God's grace, have actually seen the world for what it is and can let that go and follow Jesus, there's an incredible reward. There's one now in this wonderful, redemptive community, and there's one later, and that's eternal life. And how that plays out will be a surprise for a lot of people. You know, the world just doesn't see things God's way, at all. Often the foolish are exalted and the righteous are despised in the world, right? It's always kind of been that way. So Jesus informs his disciples in verse 30, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Why do you think he says that right here in this context? I mean, what brought about this saying, what, what he's been saying here? Well, it was that whole thing about the rich young ruler, which the disciples had seen, and they were reacting about all of that. They wanted to know what was in store for them after he walked away. And they wanted to hear what their forsaking the world to follow Jesus means for them. And, and by all human accounts, just looking at it, that rich young ruler guy was a wonderful character. He, he should have been in church we would have had him on the board. Upstanding, wealthy, good man, commandment keeper, a sure candidate for heaven in the eyes of men. But Jesus knew differently, so he applied a test to see where his faith really was, and it wasn't in him, it was in his stuff. The first to us might be the last to God. The person we think is amazing, might, God might see as the bottom of the dregs. We admire pride, God rips apart pride. We look at the good fellow brimming, brimming with self-confidence and we think there, there is a good man and God sees a man who is not broken over his sin, who's not repentant, who's not humble. A lost man whose heart belongs to a lost world, that's what God sees. And everybody else sees this wonderful guy, he's religious, he's good. And we need to see things his way. And we do that by by clinging to the Savior and taking to heart everything he says. And believers take to heart what Jesus says about now and about eternity. That's what we're supposed to do. About what God expects from people, his people, and what he says about this redeemed community, the church. We're supposed to take all of that to heart. Look, it's, it's the duty of us all to let Jesus shape our thinking about what it means for us to be in the kingdom of God. Shouldn't he be the one that defines that? Yeah, so we listen to him. To be a member of his body, to be a, be a part of this redeemed community, he needs to define that for us. All over the world, Christians really do lose their homes and their jobs and their farms. And they're shunned by their family for following Jesus or they're jailed or beaten. How many Christians are in prison in China now? You know, I don't, just the tallies they have, it's in the tens of thousands. It happens every day in many places. In fact, the Chinese are paying a bounty now. If you turn in your family member as a Christian, they wanna know who they are, so you you turn them in, you get money from the government. And we need to be burdened for those among us who are We don't have that going on here, but there's a lot of lonely people, wounded people, um, desperate people, and we need to minister to them as well. Church life wonderfully tears down social barriers and unites people. You know, they used to call them the nobility and the commoner, right? Vulgar. Vulgar means common person, not noble, right? And that means where they were born. It doesn't have anything to do with their character. That means they were born low are you high or low and the church erases all of those distinctions we still have something like that it's more having to do in our culture with celebrity and money and power and uh, who's famous and all that kind of stuff there are no elites before the throne of god you know we all live by god's grace the christian community is is about recognizing that we're all beggars before god we have no, nobody has any standing higher than other people before him. And if you're discouraged or or beat down or you feel like you're without support, we're here for you. But you gotta kinda let us know sometimes too because sometimes we're too thick to notice. So you gotta come and tell us if you're really struggling with something. We might be too dull, but if you share it with us, we're gonna care. Because we have family here in Christ and you have dozens of fathers and dozens of mothers and sisters and brothers here who will befriend you. So you got to let them in. You got to let them in a little bit. They aren't perfect either. Is your family perfect? Our our family isn't perfect. But it's a real family. And there's a profound way in which family supports each other in Christ because we are striving to do that. So let's all make um, the coming kingdom real to people in this world by living it out before them. That's what we're supposed to be doing. This is a little microcosm, a little world of the kingdom of God in one little place for the people around us to see. And we take care of each other and we look out for each other. They, the people in the world, they need us. And they need us as we are together because that's where they see it. That's how it works. That's what we're here for. So let's pray. Our great Father, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus. He's so helpful for us. What a tremendous hope we have in his salvation that he's provided for us in the coming kingdom, the glory, heaven itself when we pass away. Eternal glory. And yet here and now you've given us so much and so much that we're responsible for with regard to one another. So we ask you to help us to have the same vision that Jesus has for his people, for his church. And may we be that And we do some pretty wonderful things here, but there's always more, deeper ways we can think about it. So help us to find our place in the community, not to be shy or reserved or too ashamed, but to move in, be a part, be in the family. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.